Good afternoon, everybody. This is Arthur Asadurian with Apologia Center. And as you can tell, I have an amazing guest with me today. And sorry for being a little bit late, but that's okay. Uh, better late than never, I guess. Um, so, uh, Dr. Douglas Grutheis uh, from Denver Seminary. Welcome to Apologia Center. Thank you for agreeing to do this uh, interview. You're welcome. Glad to be here. So, you were just in Alaska uh and you just got back how is that when it comes to uh spiritual formation and rest and solitude mm. i enjoy it my wife has property in rural alaska a little town called willow alaska and we stay in a beautiful log cabin uh, we're not roughing it too much we don't have to use an outhouse which is is very good for my spiritual formation not happy <laughs> <laughs> But we did, I did a lot of uh, research and writing, uh, just one teaching opportunity. We're involved in a small church there, and Alaska is a beautiful, beautiful country uh, with the mountains and fireweed and various kinds of animals. So uh, it was a good six weeks there, but I'm happy to be back to my my library and my dog in Denver. <laughs> yeah, the the, at least uh, for me, one of those, you know, being surrounded by books uh, is is great. Are you, So you're originally from Alaska, correct? I am. I was born and raised in Anchorage, Alaska. Hmm. And then I left to go to college back in 1975. I've been back a few times and um, we'll get into this, but I remarried recently and my wife has property in rural Alaska. So we spend most of the year in Denver, and we spend some of our summers in Willow, Alaska. Hmm. We've been doing it for years. Excellent. Um, so uh, I usually introduce my guests with their educational background. Uh, yours is uh, straightforward in the sense that you just went the philosophy route from bachelor to PhD. It's just philosophy, philosophy, philosophy. And you did some work uh, in between those things. How was that? Usually I ask my guests, you know, how was that educational journey? And as people are either in between there somewhere or starting off, uh, kind of what kind of advice can you give as people venture into these uh, areas? If you go to secular schools, you definitely need to have a well-developed Christian worldview. <clears throat> Excuse me, in a good sense of apologetics. Uh, when I was in college, I realized for my undergrad that I had to develop a parallel reading program because none of my professors were giving me a Christian perspective on anything. They might even be hostile to Christianity. So as a young Christian, I read a lot of apologetics, particularly Francis Schaeffer, James Sire, Os Guinness, C.S. Lewis, people like that. So I was constantly trying to think through philosophy from a Christian perspective. And having secular degrees can be a challenge. You need a good support system. Be involved in an evangelical church, have strong friends. <clears throat> Excuse me. But if you can thrive in that environment, it gives you a good platform for ministry. Because when I'm announced on, let's say, a radio show or a podcast, especially a secular one, and they say, Dr. Grotheis is professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary, but then, you know, his degrees are from secular school. 
Mm. So that helps. And I was able to benefit from my education. I had a Christian mentor for my MA degree, uh, Professor Keith Andell, uh, who sadly just passed away last year. And I had a, excuse me, a Christian advisor for my PhD also, Dr. Bob Herbert, who passed away in 2007. So it's a very good experience for me. I think the Lord has called me as much as possible to be in a secular setting. I teach at a theological seminary, but I also have taught at secular schools as an adjunct professor. I really thrive teaching at college campuses for campus groups or being in a secular classroom. So it's worked well for me. And it's kind of odd that I ended up teaching at a a theological seminary when I don't have any theological degree. (laughs) Well, I suppose getting doing philosophy gives you uh, quite a bit of theology. Uh, That's what I figured out. When you do philosophy, you do a great deal of theology. Um, And I I would hope when people do theology that they would do a great deal of philosophy, but that hasn't always been the case. Right. Well, some of my theologians are philosophically trained, like Millard Erickson and um, John Feinberg, uh, the late Gordon Lewis. I find when people are trained in the history of ideas and critical thinking, they tend to come to theology with better tools of analysis. So um, I I guess that leads uh, us to my next question as to who your influences have been and then what is your specific apologetic methodology? Mm -hmm. My influences have been pretty broad. Uh, Certainly Francis Schaeffer got me started in apologetics. I read The God Who Is There as a young Christian in 1976 and that gave me intellectual courage to deal with the non-Christian world of thought and culture and art. So I read all of his books. Oz Guinness is my favorite social critic and he does apologetics in his own way in terms of being a spokesman, a statesman for Christianity. As he's put it, he interprets the world for the church and the church for the world. Uh, The worldview emphasis of, of James Sire has been very influential for me in, in a class I took years ago and teaching his book, The Universe Next Door, which um, is out in a sixth edition. He passed away a couple of years ago, but they came out with a final edition <clears throat> posthumously. My method um, is what's called the cumulative case method. And I was influenced in this area by Carnell and Dr. Gordon Lewis, who was my colleague at Denver Seminary for many years until he passed away a few years ago. And the basic way of doing apologetics with a cumulative case is to say that you have a hypothesis, which is the Christian worldview, and then you test it against reality in three basic categories. One is internal consistency. Do the major claims of the worldview cohere with one another. Second is, excuse me, factual adequacy. So does the worldview match up to the best knowledge we have in science and history? And then the third basic category 
is um, what can be called existential viability. So does the worldview give meaning and purpose to life? Does it give you a workable way of thinking about and engaging the world? And in my big textbook, Christian Apologetics, I actually have eight criteria that I give for evaluating worldviews. So the way you do it is if you think of, of Christianity as a, like a circle of knowledge, you can fill in the circle by arguments for God's existence, such as the divine argument, the moral argument, the cosmological argument. And you also have the arguments for the reliability of the New Testament, the deity of Jesus, the atonement of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. So it's called a cumulative case because you build up the case point by point. The entire argument doesn't rest on any one or any one specific argument. So I've been influenced by lots of apologetic methods, presuppositionalism, evidentialism. Um, I've even tried to take seriously um, a fideistic approach, which I don't hold at all, but uh, I deal with that in my book. That's the idea that you really should not appeal to evidence because you, that means you're playing the wrong game. You're playing the game of the unbeliever. You simply know by personal experience that Christianity is true. I don't hold that view, but I've read my Kierkegaard and people like that. Excellent. As you mentioned the book, I have the book sitting next to me and I want to talk about this because this is probably, well, it's, it, it's in the title. It's a comprehensive <laughs> uh, book. And for me, my personal life, um, this is a go-to apologetics text for me, right? It's, it's one of those books that I can just pick off the shelf. And I'm like, oh, I need to refresh on that argument or that subject. Now open it up and go through it. Um, now you're working uh, on a second edition to this, correct? Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about that, uh, because I've actually been telling people not to buy this yet and wait for the second edition. Uh, I don't know whether that's advice I should be given, but it seems like that you have quite a bit of updates in the new edition. Well, we need to show people how thick it is. <laughs> it's it's thick enough that you can write out my whole last name. <laughs> yeah, it took about eight and a half years to write. And as I taught it at Denver Seminary and other other places, I realized that I needed to add some things and to refine some arguments. It should be out in March of 2022. It will have seven new chapters. Every chapter is updated. And also I have two biblical scholars who have contributed, Dr. Craig Blomberg with the reliability of the New Testament and Dr. Rick Hess on some apologetic issues related to the Old Testament with archaeology and history and so on, and some of the moral issues. So I just went over the manuscript of that, and it will be about a thousand pages for the next edition. Uh, for those people who uh, are afraid whenever they see thick books, um, do not be afraid because uh, there's absolutely no rule out there that tells you that you need to sit down and read a book from the beginning to the end in one setting or something like that. And this is one of those books that you literally can open it up, jump to chapter, you know, 15 and just read chapter 15 and, and it's, it's good. And, you know, it's, you can use it as a reference book. So if a deterrent is going to be, it's thick. I don't know if I can finish it. I'm terrified of uh, big books. It's not like one of those book books. So... 
Um, I guess wait wait for the second edition, get the second edition because it, it does seem like there's quite a bit of uh, new stuff in it and I will definitely be getting the second edition. Again, it's it's been tremendously helpful for me uh, in my apologetic work and then it, even pastoral ministry, you know, because you have students when I, uh, when I was a youth pastor, students coming up and saying, hey, you know, my professor said this or I'm dealing with this issue and it was I was able to just go there, open it up. So, okay, let's deal with those arguments and, and see what it's about. So it's it's a great, great resource. I'm really happy that you you actually worked on a second edition and added those components. Yeah. Let me make let me make one point. You can certainly use it like a reference book. So let's say you want to study the case against Darwinism and the case for intelligence. You can read chapters 13 to 14. But the book is really laid out as one long argument. So, as I said, it's a cumulative case approach to apologetics. So, the chapters are laid out in a particular order to make that cumulative case argument. So, I hope, actually, that you will read the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily suggesting that people not read the whole thing. It's just that some people are terrified of big books and then they're like, oh, man, you know, read the whole thing. I mean, you're definitely going to benefit more so than if, if you don't. Uh, absolutely. Um, so I, I took, uh, it's interesting because I took that class with another Douglas. Um, so uh, Doug Guyvet uh, at Talbot and I took apologetics with him. And so we went through, we went through that book and, and we did have to read the whole thing. I'll tell you that. So <laughs> he, he didn't use it as a reference book. We, we read it and it, it's, it's, it's not like some, you're a great author, by the way. I, it, sometimes you read authors and they're heavy. You, um, and you have a special gift, I would say, of uh, not losing content in your explanation of stuff, but it not being overly kind of heavy where you, it's hard to digest. So I thoroughly enjoyed reading the book. I, I didn't think it was that difficult of a read. And uh, English is a second language to me, so um, I don't read as fast as uh, some others. Uh, so for, for those of you guys who are much better at reading than I am, you, you'll enjoy that. Um, yeah, okay. let, me, let me tell you a little story if I could, and I apologize for my sure, dog no. Fine. guarding the house. <laughs> <laughs> Probably talk about Sunny when we talk about uh, suffering and how the Lord uses pets to encourage us. But I have a student who just graduated who is from India, from the Kerala region of India. And Krishna Apologetics was the first book in English he ever read. Now, he had an education, but he had read everything online, and English is his second language. But he worked through it. He learned a lot of vocabulary. And the way I wrote it was to make it interesting and engaging, and to start from zero, but then take you deep into the apologetic adventure as you go along. And I tried to make it interesting and pertinent and funny once in a while. Look at some of those footnotes. There are little elements of humor in there once in a while. So that was my goal, to, to write well, to document well, and to cover as much ground as I can. Excellent. Um, okay, so let's let's switch gears here and talk about, specifically, we'll start with suffering and then go on at, uh, on the subject of uh, suffering as an apologetic. Um, I think most of us that are, if not all of us, that have been involved uh, in in the Christian kind of conversations with non-believers, um, at one point or another, we're going to hear some version 
of what's called the problem of evil. So, um, and it's typically used as an argument against Christianity, right? It's, well, if God is so good and, and powerful, why would, God, why would a good, loving God, an all-powerful God permit for there to be evil? Why is suffering such a big deal, I guess, um, in Christianity? And then how do we shift gears from there uh, to talk about it from like a positive perspective as it being an apologetic for Christianity? And maybe you can start with your personal um, experience as to how you started working on this specific subject. I've dealt with the issue for a very long time as a Christian philosopher. And I have a chapter in Christian apologetics, long chapter on the problem of evil. And some years later, I published a book called Walking Through Twilight, which is a memoir, which is a story of what happened to my first wife and myself through her contracting dementia. So I dealt with it very philosophically and theologically in Christian apologetics and then more experientially in Walking Through Twilight. The basic philosophical problem is internal consistency of the Christian worldview. I mentioned earlier that every worldview needs to be internally consistent concerning its essential propositions or its basic truth claims. We might say defining beliefs. So <clears throat> uh, the Bible affirms that God is all powerful and all good and that there is real evil in the world of many kinds. There are evils that human beings human beings bring about through cruelty, selfishness. There is evil that occurs through natural disasters like earthquakes and hurricanes. And our heart breaks over these evils in all the various forms that they take. So the skeptic, or even the Christian, could say, if God really were all-powerful, then he wouldn't allow any evil, or at least not this much, and if he were all good, he wouldn't want any evil, or at least not as much as we have. Therefore, the idea of an all-good and an all-powerful evil combined, an all-powerful all God and an all-good God combined with the existence of evil is uh, what they call an inconsistent triad. You can't harmonize those three propositions. But actually, you can. And the way you do it is to say that an all-knowing being is also all-wise, and he only allows as much evil as necessary to produce a greater good that, not, that would not have been possible otherwise. My basic approach is called the greater good defense. There are various defenses that philosophers have given. That's my essential approach, that if you can build up good arguments from natural theology through design arguments, cosmological arguments, moral arguments, that there is a God. And if we're moral realists, we believe there is evil, then the question becomes, how do we square the existence of this God with evil? And simply saying that this God is providential over history, I think is the basic strategy to address this issue. Now, we need to really get specific and make this more existentially gripping. And that's where we come to the gospel story, where we come to Jesus Christ. 
God incarnate, who came to live and die and suffer for us to atone for our sins. So we have this general philosophical approach that we can deal with this supposedly inconsistent triad by adding the proposition that I just mentioned. But then you want to say, all right, well, that was kind of tricky. <laughs> you got yourself out of that. But really, how does this bear on people's lives? Well, that's where Christianity speaks. Because unlike any other religion, Christianity teaches that a personal God came to a fallen world in the person of Jesus Christ, a real historical being, an actor in history, and lived a righteous life, taught nothing but the truth, worked miracles, and he was a man born to die. And his death would be the atonement for human sin. And there's so many dimensions to the atonement, but we often think of paying a debt we could not pay and taking the penalty for us in our place. That's the idea of a vicarious atonement. And in the second edition of my Christian apologetics book, I have two new chapters explaining and defending the atonement. But with respect to the problem of evil, we want to say that God himself loved the world so much that he came to suffer and die to show us what kind of a God he is. So Jesus, who is completely holy and righteous and loving and truthful, died uh, the most unjust death you can imagine, humanly speaking, because he was innocent of any crime. He was morally exemplary, yet of his own volition offered himself as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And you won't find anything remotely similar to that in any other religion, any other worldview. And it's not just an idea that would inspire us or motivate us or give us courage. It happened. And we have four gospel writers who talk about what Jesus said and did. And we have the epistles backing that up by Paul and Peter. Peter was a firsthand disciple of Jesus and so on. And one thing that speaks to me tremendously is <clears throat> that on the cross, Jesus quoted one of the many psalms of lament, Psalm 22, where he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's kind of a scandal because you think if he's really God incarnate and he came to suffer and die, why did he cry out like that? Was he somehow doubting his mission? Did he lose his faith? Not at all. He was praying. He was praying Psalm 22 to his heavenly father. And it simply shows, uh, not simple, it shows many things, but it shows the depth of the suffering that he experienced uh, as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The one, to use an older term, who propitiates our sin, who takes away God's wrath by standing in our place, by suffering for us by shedding his blood and offering himself and we remember that and we celebrate that and we really participate in that every time we have the eucharist or communion so that tells me and it should tell everyone in the world that suffering is not meaningless because if the logos of god the second person of the trinity would come to earth and take on human form 
and die that kind of a death in order to reconcile us to God. And if he cried out in their election, this psalm of lament, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then we can find some meaning in suffering. Suffering is not meaningful. So I, I suppose this might um, kind of bring us to a place because now we're talking about suffering as an apologetic um, in comparison to how we make sense of suffering when it comes to different worldviews. Um, can you comment, uh, for example, like some, maybe the way Eastern religions might define suffering as compared to what like an atheist, how an atheist can make sense of suffering if they can. Um, right. And then maybe like within the monotheistic religions and, and why Christianity would stand above these, uh, not only philosophically, but, but experientially making sense of our sufferings. Right. In the chapter called The Problem of Evil in Christian Apologetics, I uh, make some preliminary comments. And then I say, let's consider how other worldviews address suffering and evil. Because there is a problem of evil, not only for Christianity, but for every worldview. But the problem takes a different shape, given the worldview that we're talking about. So I can't compare all the religions, but let me talk about Buddhism for me. The first noble truth that Siddhartha Gautama preached after he became enlightened was life is suffering. So Buddhism recognizes the suffering, the frustration, the agony of this world. But notice it doesn't start the way the Christian story starts, which is in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then God says repeatedly in Genesis 1, it is good. It is good. And things only become bad at the fall in Genesis 3. So we have suffering in the world because it's a good world gone wrong through human rebellion against God. Buddhism doesn't even try to explain suffering, why it's here at all. It says suffering is caused by craving. We can't get what we want. We want what we don't, we have what we don't want. So we have to just cease desiring and hope we can escape this world of suffering and reincarnation and karma entirely and attain to a state called nirvana. And nirvana is not a personal communion with God because Buddhism doesn't need God. It's a supposed path of personal liberation. And uh, God or gods play no role, really, in Buddhism, in essential Buddhist teachings. So there's a very big difference. And when people try to compare Jesus and Buddha and say, really, they were two teachers saying about the same thing. Well, they agreed on certain moral ideas, as all great moral teachers do. But when it comes to what they thought about themselves and what they accomplished, they are a million miles from each other. They have extremely different worldviews, and they live different kinds of lives. Uh, Buddha uh, never, for example, accepted worship. Why? He never commanded worship. He never elicited worship. He didn't talk about God. He never said, I am God in your midst. There are a number of cases in the Gospels, even before the resurrection, where Jesus was worshipped. And in Matthew 28, 18, it says that uh, some worshipped him. And he didn't say, stop that, you know, you got it wrong, I'm just a prophet or a guru. He accepted it. 
And he said, before Abraham was, I am. Many divine claims. So Christianity agrees with Buddhism that suffering is real and any worldview worth anything has to address it. But its understanding of the origin of suffering and the response to suffering is entirely different. Or let's take Islam. <clears throat> Islam believes that Allah created the world. It doesn't believe in original sin, however. It believes that the first humans sinned, but they were reinstated. And the essential problem with humanity is not a deep set sin orientation, which is what Christianity teaches, but ignorance. So Allah has to send these prophets to remind people the right way to live. And Islam teaches that Jesus was one of the prophets of Allah, but not the second person of the Trinity, not God incarnate. Islam even denies against all history and all reason that Jesus was crucified. So when the Muslim has to address suffering, it's not that God knows suffering from the inside out because Allah, the God of Islam, is utterly and absolutely other, transcendent. He sends prophets, but you must not get too close to Allah. So Islam does not teach we're made in the image and likeness of God. It doesn't teach that Jesus was the incarnation. Muhammad was not an incarnation. They were merely prophets of Allah. And another aspect of Islam is that Islam began as a religion of victory and conquering, uh, whereas Christianity began as a persecuted minority, which already had a strong doctrine of suffering. It wasn't masochistic or sadistic, but Islam began conquering the world. Um, you know, Muhammad was a, a pro considered a prophet, religious teacher, political leader, and military man. And when he died, he was as successful as you can imagine. He had all this land, all these wives, great property. Uh, his religion seemed to be conquering the world. So, in its in its very nature and origin, Islam doesn't have a theology of of suffering because it's a religion of conquest. And a Muslim can cry out to God, but you don't have the theological richness of the biblical idea of lament uh, that we see with Jesus on the cross, and which we see in the book of Lamentations and in maybe 60 of the Psalms and throughout scripture where people cry out to God from the depths and say things like, how long, O oh Lord, how long will we suffer? When will you rescue us? You know, we are hurting horribly. We don't understand what's going on. And those are legitimate prayers. They're right there in the scripture. So we can pray like that without being faithless, without denying our worldview, denying our allegiance to Christ at all. But you don't have those kind of existential relational resources in the two examples that i gave of, of buddhism and in islam how does the atheist um, try to make sense of suffering well it would depend on the atheist but the basic <clears throat> answer is that because there is no god history has no purpose human beings were not designed to live 
in community. Uh, there's no God to cry out to. And so the counsel of the atheist is essentially stuff happens, get over it. And while you're here, develop science and rationality as best you can and make sure you don't fall for that religious mumbo jumbo. Now, you know, there have been atheists who have wanted to resist evil and have tried to create heroic figures that resist evil. I'm thinking of Albert Camus and his novel, The Plague. But really, if life is without objective meaning, if it's not going anywhere, there's no teleology, if we're not created for a purpose and there is no God to hear our prayers or reveal themselves, then if everything is meaningless, then my life has to be meaningless as well. Now the whole ocean is by definition water. So one wave is going to be water as well. If everything is meaningless, then my life is meaningless as well. But because we're made in the image and likeness of God, even if we deny that, we are meaning-seeking beings. We want to live as if life had some purpose, even if it's only the purpose that I create absurdly. Yeah, it doesn't but seem it, it doesn't seem like we can run away from purpose. Uh, it's kind of like our we we have this naturally um, natural ability kind of to seek out purpose in in ourselves and in in other things. Yeah, we're really, if you want to put it this way, hardwired for it. Our neurology seeks purpose and thinks in terms of cause and effect and desired outcomes and the frustration of desired outcomes. And the atheist just has to pull the rug from all of that. Uh, like when Bertrand Russell, the great atheist and mathematician philosopher, debated the Catholic philosopher Frederick Copleston in 1948, Coppleston gave several arguments for God's existence, which I think were quite good. But Bertrand Russell said, the universe is just there. It's just there. You know, just facticity. Just things exist and they have no creation, no design, no reason why they are there. The universe is just there. Or go to Carl Sagan, the astronomer and science popular, popularizer in his book, Cosmos. The first line of Cosmos is, the universe is all there is, was, or ever will be. Now that's a philosophical statement. It's not a statement he derived from science, but he was presenting himself as the great spokesman of science. He's an astronomer, he was articulate, he was passionate, but he starts out with a metaphysical proposition and then explains the universe and science according to that ungrounded and actually irrational metaphysical proposition. Yeah, it seems to me that most of uh, the popular atheists who are scientists are extremely poor philosophers. I mean, I just recently did oh. a video um, responding to Lawrence Krauss, who very simply confuses um, how and what I mean, uh, the, these are completely uh, different questions, you know. So uh, one is a, uh, uh, or, uh, you know, asking the why questions. These are purpose questions where he's just talking about the mechanics of things, the what of things. And you kind of sit there. I mean, these are brilliant individuals, but yet they make very kind of silly mistakes when it comes to their philosophy. Well, I, I'm a big fan of the economist and social critic Thomas Sowell. 
And one of Thomas Sowell's great lines is, expertise is not transferable. So someone might be a brilliant physicist and an absolutely horrific, horrible philosopher. I mean, take Stephen Hawking, one of the most brilliant men with respect to physics who ever lived, and a heroic figure overcoming his illness and so on. But Stephen Hawking said the universe created itself out of the law of gravity. Wait a minute, nothing can create itself. That's a philosophical impossibility. I don't care how great of a physicist you are, you can't make that true. Nothing can create itself because it would have to precede itself in existence in order to take itself into existence. You know, your mind just starts to blow up here. And the universe created itself out of nothing by the law of gravity. Wait a minute, the law of gravity is something. It's not nothing. So uh, such an accomplished and stunningly brilliant man on physics can make these bizarre illogical statements and a freshman in college who knows some logic, a high school student who knows some logic can open one of uh, Hawking's books, maybe not his technical physics books, but one of his more popular books and when he talks about the universe, meaning, religion, and say, wait a minute, that just cannot be true. Period. Or Lawrence Krauss, uh, he thinks the universe came out of nothing, but then he gives nothing properties. He gives nothing attributes. Nothing has no properties, no attributes, no qualities. It can't. So he plays around with this idea of nothing because yeah. he's a terrible philosopher and he's absolutely committed to his atheistic, naturalistic worldview. Yeah, which tells us something, right? Um, uh, about people showing up without any agendas or biases or something like that, which is practically not the case. Everybody's preaching mm -hmm. something. Um, let's move gears here because you mentioned your dog. And um, uh, I mean, there's plenty of people, especially in this time of uh, COVID and people reasoning through various things. Uh, a great many of us have gone through some form of suffering or not, whether it's seclusion from our family members, whether it's actually the, the loss of family members and friends um, um, or just suffering through COVID ourselves. Um, some people have taken it very lightly and some people it's, it's been really, really bad. I mean, to the, you know, they were on the brink of death. Um, what are ways, experiential ways where we can deal and interact with our suffering instead of ignoring it? I, I'm like kind of confront it. Um, and then what are some uh, added to that? What are some things God has given us to deal um, with suffering? I think having a a rational and meaningful worldview is pivotal for addressing suffering. So the way I like to put it is that we have a very strong case for Christianity. You could talk about like a, a circle of knowledge or maybe a framework of knowledge. But within that are pockets of mystery, things we cannot explain. And in my own case, my first wife, Rebecca Merrill Grothuis, who passed away in 2018, Rebecca was a brilliant writer and editor, and she contracted a rare form of dementia called primary progressive aphasia that eventually uh, took her voice and took her abilities and eventually took her life. And I wrote about that in Walking Through Twilight. But we knew, Rebecca and I knew that Christianity was true, even though this suffering was terrible, 
And God didn't tell us exactly why it was happening. We could see some good that came out of it, but not enough to say, oh, this is great. You know, we'd do it again. I wouldn't. She wouldn't. So having a, a, a true, rational, and meaningful worldview is really significant. And I'll tell you one short story about this. Becky and I were going out to eat once, and she was lamenting her fate, as she did and I did. She knew she had this terminal disease, and she was losing her mental abilities. But she could still go out at that point. We could go enjoy a nice meal. And I said, well, Becky, one day we will be completely beyond this suffering, and we'll be in the new heavens and the new earth with the Lord and dancing and singing. And she looked at me and said, but is it really true? And Rebecca had been a Christian since she was a little girl. She got baptized, I think, when she was 12, something like that. But in the crush of this terrible suffering, and also the dementia is damaging her brain functions to some extent. And what I said to her kind of surprised me. I really think it was a word from the Lord. I said, Becky, do you think I'm smart? She said, oh, yeah, you're smart. I said, do you remember that big apologetics book that you edited, Christian Apologetics? You know where I'm going with this. And she said, I do. And I said, whether you remember it or not, you edited every word of that book. And you agreed that there were good arguments. So I said, I assure you that Christianity is true and we have a reason for our hope. So in a way, I was helping her believe by reminding her of just how strong the arguments are for the existence of God, reliability of scripture, resurrection of Jesus, all these things. So having a competent or having a, a worldview that makes sense of the world is crucial. And spending time in the scripture because the scriptures take suffering with utter seriousness. And it tells us that we may not be able to explain a lot of the suffering in this way. You certainly see that in the book of Ecclesiastes. It's bad things happen to good people. We don't understand why the righteous don't flourish and the unrighteous often do flourish or why the goods of life seem, seem so fragile and short-lived. Of course, we have the book of Job about the suffering of a righteous man and how he responded to that. We have the Psalms of lament, like 22, 80, 90, uh, and many, many other Psalms of lament. So we can, we can live our Christian faith through these prayers and through the scripture. We also need the support of our friends in the church. And sometimes people will disappoint us. But we have to try to not be bitter, but to receive help. Because if, let's say, you're a caregiver to someone who's chronically ill, then you suffer a lot of fatigue. And you might get extremely sad, even depressed yourself. So you need what's called respite care. And you need to be healthy enough to take care of your loved one. And if you go down the drain, you're not going to be there to help them. It's like what they say on the airplane. Uh, if, you know, through some unlikely event, the cabin loses air pressure and the oxygen masks come down and you have a child 
put it on you first and then put it on the child. Well, why? Because you need to be breathing and functioning to help the child. Well, the same thing is true for people who are giving care to those who are suffering really badly. You need to take care of yourself. And that is a loving thing to do, certainly. So those are some things. Have a, a worldview that makes sense of suffering. Learn how to pray with lament. Let yourself be helped by people. Don't be so proud as to not receive help. Uh, we need help and encouragement from the body of Christ. We are, after all, one body and every part relates to the other part. Every part should support the other part. Paul speaks of that both in 1 Corinthians 12 and 14 and so on. And realize that uh, a lot of suffering is beyond our understanding. And that's all right. As I said, if you can put that suffering in a framework or within a circle of meaning, then you can get through it. Um, maybe I can use an example of a friend. Perhaps you know someone really well and you trust them and you have reason to trust them. But they sometimes act in, in strange ways and you can't quite figure out why they did something. But because you know them so well, you put it in a good light. You don't question someone's entire integrity because maybe a few odd things show up. And how much more the Lord of the universe, the God who is the basis of morality, who created and designed everything, who sent his son in, into the world to atone for our sin. We can trust him where we can't understand because we know who he is and we have reason to believe that he is an all good and all powerful and that he is God with us through Christ and that he's given us the Holy Spirit to minister in us and to us. Um, so I see a weakness in the modern evangelical church when it comes to actually lamenting. I mean, we probably don't do it at all, is what I would say. Maybe there are hints of it. I mean, I'm sure there's communities that do it in, in various ways that I'm not aware of. Um, but what would be some practical advice you could say that we would be able to either do this collectively or maybe even bring it into our our worship services or our Bible studies, uh, because it seems to be the case that our worship services at least are almost always um, geared towards praise and just kind of a happy reality. Right. Well, there's a good book uh, that an Old Testament scholar wrote on uh, the Psalms of Lament. And uh, I'll have to be kind of general for right now. But he studied... Uh, not only the Psalms of Lament, he came up with, uh, he thinks, 60 out of the 150 Psalms in one way or another are Psalms of Lament. And then he studied recent hymns and worship songs in different religious, Christian religious traditions. And what he found was that it's called Hurting with God. The book's called Hurting with God. He found exactly what you said, that lament was not properly represented because when you think about the role of lament in christian spirituality in the bible which is our ultimate guide and authority uh, the shape of our worship should reflect the shape of worship and prayer and spirituality found in the scriptures 
and lament is a very real practice. We have a whole book, you know, the Lamentations of Jeremiah, called Lamentations. And we have very gritty reflections on the disappointments of life and putting them into context in the book of Ecclesiastes, which has meant so much to me for so many years. So I think we need to recapture the art of lament. Or to put it another way, no one wants to suffer and we should not seek out suffering for the sake of suffering. That's very unhealthy mentally. I mean, that's what's called masochism. But we are going to suffer in, in this life. So you have two options. You can suffer well or you can suffer poorly. But you will suffer. Now, Scripture and the Holy Spirit teaches us to develop the skill of suffering. How to suffer ourselves without becoming bitter. You can call out to God. You can question God. The psalmist do that, right? But then also how to minister to other people. And one verse that has been very meaningful to me is one that was powerful for Francis Schaeffer as well. And that's Isaiah 50, verse 4. And this is a reference to the coming Messiah. And it says, the Lord has given me an instructed tongue that I might know the word that sustains the weary. So as we're living among other people who are suffering, we should ask the Lord to give us an instructed tongue that helps sustain the weary. And in some cases, we can do more harm than good. And I address that actually in walking through twilight, especially as Americans, we can try to cheer people up when it's not the time to cheer people up. You know, Jesus wept at the tomb of, of Lazarus. He didn't tell a joke or try to get people's mind off it. And often we need to weep with those who weep. Yes, also rejoice with those who rejoice. But Ecclesiastes 3 says there's a time to mourn and there's a time to dance. So we need to discern what time it is. If you're at a wedding, that should be a happy time. If you're at a funeral, it's not. Um, uh, Becky died, my first wife died. I was just staring at my dog, Sonny. <laughs> Got to bring him into this in a minute. He wants to get his due here. But um, I, I was able to remarry not that long after Rebecca passed away. And there are a lot of psychological reasons for that. I won't go into it. My pastor agreed with it. My counselor agreed with it. But it was such a study in contrast between her funeral and my wedding. But both of them were shrouded in the sacred. Uh, I'm an evangelical Anglican, so we have ways, I'm not trying to get sectarian here, but we have ways of doing funerals that really honor the Lord with what we say and what we do. And we have ways of doing a wedding that makes it obvious that we believe in Christ and Christ is the foundation of what we're doing. So we need the church, we need the sacred to give meaning to lamenting and to give meaning to rejoicing. Because scripture speaks to every season of life, whatever it is, gives us wisdom. And the Lord, the Holy Spirit guides us. And we don't want to 
grieve the spirit or quench the spirit. But if we do, as John says, if we sin, he is faithful. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let me bring in a question here. Um, it says, how much of that is due to Christ's victory, i.e. the Old Testament saints were waiting for relief? But Christ has brought victory so we can rejoice with confidence that justice has been done. Well, we can, but we find lament in the New Testament as well. Um, the lament of Jesus on the cross. And we find very deep emotion in the Apostle Paul when he laments over the unfaithfulness or disobedience of some of the churches, like at the church at Corinth and so on. So... The Psalter, you know, the Psalms in the Old Testament are the prayer book of the church. It's not like their shelf life uh, has passed. So we can pray those Psalms of Lament with a broader perspective because we know uh, that Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So we have a fuller measure of hope and more knowledge about what redemption means. But uh, it's still a fallen and broken world. So I would go especially to Romans 8, 18 through 26, where Paul says the whole world is groaning together in travail, awaiting its final redemption. And he says, we too groan. So he's saying the creation groans, we groan, and the spirit within us groans longing for redemption yeah so. i suppose the, for for me it's um yes there's uh there's the american context where americans are just generally not used to suffering because uh, at least in the last say 60 70 years or so uh where america's done very well and uh it, life's been pretty decent you know um, america hasn't really been uh terrified that the enemies from north and south are going to attack and invade like a lot of other countries kind of continuously live with the threat of war um, economically and just socially it's 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 been good and uh, maybe it's a result of this where the american church has issues with suffering and we kind of get really uncomfortable when there is um, uh, pain and evil happening. We don't actually know how what it looks like to confront pain in the first place, where some societies are very used to that kind of stuff. I think you're right, and there's this American tradition of optimism, of entrepreneurship, which is a very good thing. But at the same time, uh, life has some deep disappointments, and we need to suffer along with those who are suffering, uh, not to be dour or to be hopeless, but to enter into others' suffering and be a presence of love. Uh, I think what it comes down to is no matter how bad your suffering is or anybody's suffering is, love gives meaning to suffering when that love comes from the suffering servant, from Jesus Christ. Can you g give some advice to um, some people that might feel guilty for complaining to God, lamenting and saying, why me? Uh, why do I really have to go through this? Because you know, essentially these are questions we don't have the answers to. 
but there are questions we have. And at times, sadly, within the church, we're told that this is somehow a lack of faith or distrusting God or unbelief or something like that. Right. Well, it's sometimes difficult to know the difference between ungodly grumbling and godly lament. And I've written a little bit about it here and there. I think ungodly grumbling is where you you don't remember the goodness of God or you give up on God. But lament is appealing to God on the basis of who he is. Say, God, you are good, you are holy, but I'm suffering terribly. And would you please change the situation? Now, there could be real urgency in these prayers of lament. But I think it's better to be angry with God than to turn your back on God. And I've been a Christian now for over 45 years. And I've never been able to just turn my back on God when I'm disappointed or angry or upset. I'm always kind of, God, you know, what's going on? I have to deal with him. You know, I'm a God-haunted man. I've got to deal with God. And the idea if I just try to forget about him or something of that nature just doesn't work. And I have to ask for forgiveness all the time. And I've been wrongly angry with God. I don't think we should be angry with God, but we can express our disappointment, <clears throat> our disillusionment with the Lord, and that's fine. And if we do cross over into grumbling and bitterness, then we ask the Holy Spirit to show us and we confess our sin and know he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin. And we continue walking down the path of Christian discipleship through that. Yeah, I think some um, of I this... Go ahead, sorry. Yeah, I'm sorry. I do want to talk a little bit about my dog. Yes. Because it's pertinent, it's pertinent to suffering. Let me see if I'll come on camera. Sonny, come here, boy. Come on. Come over here. Sonny, get over here. Come here. Come on. Come on. Come on, boy. Come on. All right. Come here. Come here. Come here. Get to be a star again. Come here. All right. This is my dog, Sonny. And uh, he is a golden doodle. And we got him about 10 years ago when my wife, my first wife was alive. And I talk about him quite a Ready to go off camera now? Okay. He wants his union wages for that. So um, I talk about Sonny quite a bit in the book because God has many ways of giving us comfort and help and encouragement through our suffering. And Sonny is a very emotionally responsive dog. So if Becky was upset, even before I knew she was about to cry, Sonny would come up, jump up in her lap, nuzzle her, lick her face. Uh, he's, he's very responsive. He's a funny dog. He goes crazy over everything. You know, you've been out for 10 minutes. He's so excited to see you. You give him the same old dog food he's had for 10 years. He, does somersaults just about because he's so happy to eat. So uh, the Lord showed Becky and me a lot of uh, grace through our dog. And dogs can be wonderful companions. Dogs are sometimes trained as therapy dogs, support dogs. You see them often in airports and in public places. So in my book, Walking Through Twilight, I 
talk about several episodes where Sonny really helped us out of difficult situations. He just made us laugh or he uh, showed love to us. And he was just the right kind of dog that we needed to get through this suffering. And uh, my new wife, Kathleen and Sonny are our best buddies. In fact, Sonny loves everybody. <laughs> it seems like it. Um, he's a big dog, huh? He's about 75 pounds. Yeah, he's a, he's a big golden doodle. And he didn't get trimmed this summer because he was with a family for the summer. He wasn't with us. So he's just a furry monster right now. In fact, he'll get he'll get trimmed in about uh, an hour. Oh. And he'll be more, he'll be more camera ready after he gets his trim. Yeah. Hair, haircut coming up um yeah. you know that that just uh, makes me reflect on the fact that god's given us um so many things that will help us like so i i like being in nature i like work like i like gardening and stuff like that and that's uh, pretty therapeutic for me whenever i'm stressed out and I'm, I'm going through issues just getting my hands dirty in the dirt literally and, and planting things and just nurturing and caring for them helps me uh, quite a bit and i just see that god's created us in a way to be connected with nature you know i think you know it kind of makes you reflect back on into the garden where yeah. humanity has this responsibility and the animals are there in the garden as well there there is a harmonious relationship uh with uh, animals and maybe uh, with that comes you know you mentioned that uh, the dog is a funny dog and you know is emotionally kind of connected a lot of people don't think about maybe um, dogs uh, or just animals in general having, uh, I, I might use the wrong words here, but uh, personality or, um, or souls, you could you know, speak about it within the philosophical context. And that being a part of God's gift and grace uh, for us as helpmates. Uh, well, I think so. And I haven't developed a full-fledged theology of the animal kingdom. I have a bit of a theology of dogs. Uh, I do think that a lot of non-human animals will somehow be in the new heavens and the new earth. There's some passages in Isaiah that indicate that. And I think just your basic theology of creation, God created each thing according to its kind and created humans as the pinnacle of creation. But every time he created, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. And if we have the restoration of creation, which you see in Revelation 21 and 22 and some other passages in Isaiah and so on, uh, this is viewed as, as a garden and a city and a temple. Actually, all three images are there. And I think it would be odd for God to have created all these different kinds of critters and then only human beings live eternally with god it just seems unbiblical to me so uh you know it may take more faith to think there'll be cats in heaven you know cats in the new heavens and the new earth cats have their virtue yeah yeah I, I know there's at least one person that's watching uh right now that is a huge cat person so um i'm, I'm sure and all sorts of cats right because lions and tigers would would fall into that uh that right. category right. Right. Yeah, I, I mean, I've uh, we we have our wisdom, and I, I kind of look at this as like the stewardship dominion aspect of humanity, of uh, being able to train 
animals for ends, right? Like for a purpose, like a telos, where uh, they will uh, uh, be a companion to someone who's going through suffering. Um, oh, yeah. and, and so that, that comes into the picture of humanity functioning in its proper role as representative of God and, and caring for God's creation and what God has uh, given to us. Um, Lewis has some very wise comments about humans and animals in his book, The Problem of Pain. And he talks about how when humans have close relationships with animals, and he was a dog lover, they, in a sense, humanize the animal to some extent. The animals can take on some human qualities, and also we can benefit from their uniquely animal qualities. There's so many books about C.S. Lewis, his marriage to Joy Davidman, you know, his writing of literature, his apologetics, his writings on ethics. To my knowledge yet, nobody's come up with a book called C.S. Lewis and His Dogs. So uh, maybe that's... There's a dissertation idea right there, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, somebody start working on that. Uh, hurry. Um, experientially... I mean, it, it's quite heavy and burdensome. Uh, and you mentioned some friends, you mentioned the community, church community, because this is kind of a give or take, uh, because I've heard horror stories, right? Christians with good intentions, um, right. giving some horrendous advice and yeah. being extremely hurtful to someone's situation. Uh, yeah. What are some very basic kind of things you can tell us? Um, and again, look, I'm, I'm 35 years old, right? I haven't lost um, too many friends and, and loved ones uh, just because of the nature of my age. And, and I realized the older I get, right, then we start losing parents and, and all sorts of stuff happen. Uh, what are some of those advices you can give to younger folks to, to be wise as we deal with individuals who are going through tremendous amounts of suffering? Well, one scripture that has ministered to me tremendously is... Um, in Proverbs, it says, each heart knows its own bitterness and no one shares its joy. So there's a kind of opacity to our individual consciousness. And we need to give people that unique experience. So when you're with someone who's suffering profoundly, it's usually not a good idea to say, I know what you're going through. Because you probably don't. Now, if someone was talking to me or I'm talking to someone whose spouse has dementia, now we have some things in common there, but we each have our own unique subjectivity. We all suffer differently, although we all suffer. So I think we need to give people the space to inhabit their own suffering without us trying to relate ourselves to it and interpret it for them. But at the same time, we want to recognize and acknowledge the suffering. One thing we should not do is to tell people it's really not so bad. That's in the cheering up part of it. Now, if someone has been grieving terribly for a long time, they're not taking positive steps to re-engage life, then we might need to, to challenge them, you know, to get off the mark and start engaging life again the way the world wants them to. But you shouldn't try to rush people through grieving, and you shouldn't try to tell them it's really not so bad. 
or say, well, at least it's not something worse. So I read a book by a young scholar of religious history. And she was told as a young woman, I think early 30s, that she had stage four cancer. This was a surprise. She had no idea it was that bad. She had a young child, a promising career as a historian. And she said, whatever you tell me, don't tell me it's not so bad. Uh, what could you say? Well, at least it's not stage five cancer. <laughs> you know, stage four is as bad as it gets. Or I think of Nicholas Wolterstorff's brilliant book called Lament for a Son. He lost his son to a hiking, a mountain climbing accident when his son was only 25. And he said, come grieve with me, sit with me on the mourner's bench, but don't tell me it's really not so bad. Yeah, I suppose there's a there's a lesson here to learn from Job's friends, um, right. who pro who probably should have just shut their mouths and sat there, instead instead of trying to figure all this stuff out. Maybe there's a time and a place for that. Um, just being with someone, or sitting with them in their silence, uh, touching them appropriately, as a sign of love. I had a very interesting experience many years ago. My neighbors, my uh, my neighbors had a, a strange emergency late one night and the ambulance came. So I walked over and it was a man and his wife and his wife had had some kind of strange mental symptoms and they were taking her to the hospital. And I just, I knew them, not really well, but I knew them. I just touched their shoulder and said something like, I'll be praying for you. It'll be all right. Something like that. Her name was uh, Janet. And she told my wife later, Becky, my first wife, that that touch stayed with her all the way through her time in the hospital. This touch somehow communicated God's peace to her. So, you know, we were made to be uh, touching, to, to show physical love in appropriate ways. And we've lost so much of that through the pandemic. That's been very difficult for people, especially people with Latin blood, you know, I don't look like it, but I'm half Italian. I like to hug, you know, and give a kiss on the cheek. <laughs> you, know? uh, you have to be careful of that in, in today's climate. But appropriate touch is tremendous, just a loving, silent present, presence. Also doing concrete things to help, bringing over meals, shoveling snow, taking the car in to be fixed, uh, sponsoring a little retreat for someone so they can, like a caregiver could get respite and be encouraged, uh, bringing somebody their favorite box of chocolates. Uh, those things are meaningful. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, we've uh, crossed over an hour and this is just, a phenomenal conversation because there's so much to learn uh and and at times i uh, in the kind of intellectual arena in the apologetics world we we deal with suffering as just this propositional kind of stuff um and we can really miss out we can really miss out when people are going through suffering in in the moment um and just being in pastoral ministry i've i've seen that um where it's you know, people are sitting in your office yelling at you saying, hey, you know, give me an answer. And you're like, 
I, I can't, I'm not God, I can't give you an answer to this, but I can sit here with you and cry, I can sit here with you and, and, and try to, uh, you know, be here. Um, if you need a hug, you need a hug. If, if uh, you know, we can just sit here in silence, that, that's completely fine. I, I think we really need that because the experiential, that, that, that experience of actually being able to do that is an apologetic in and of itself. Uh, we shouldn't se separate it from these answers we give. And there's a time and a place to give those answers. Usually it's after people have gone through their mourning, uh, gone through their suffering. Um, I would never advise anyone to try to give a response to the problem of evil when somebody just buried their husband or their wife or, or their child, you know, three days ago. Like, just don't do that, please, because you will you will cause a great deal of harm instead of good. So there's some wisdom that we need uh, there. Any final words? Well, as Christians, we can embrace suffering as having meaning and realize that suffering and death do not have the final words on the creation. As we say in the Anglican Church every week, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. So let's believe that, let's live as if it were true because it is true and let's defend the faith given once for all to the saints be filled with the spirit and suffer well with others when we need to and rejoice well when it's the season to rejoice amen thank you so much for agreeing to come on and and share your experience and uh, and your knowledge with us uh, we really appreciate it for those of you guys who are watching or watching the replay of this thank you for watching, make sure that you like and subscribe and share this out because we do these interviews so that the church will be well equipped to deal with all the different issues that we go through. So God bless you guys. Take care and we'll see you next time. Thank you.